when we talk about growth in these programs, um, often the caveat comes up, but if it grows, can it still maintain quality? So we are, and we're an organization founded on, let's build some quality standards so people that are working on these at the grassroots level have some guideposts to follow um, because we've been through it, we've seen it, we know they're gonna have to tackle this, this is how we suggest they take it on. Uh, so that's definitely part of something that I worry about is I don't think growth and quality are mutually exclusive, but there has to be intent and planning. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't take a program that's a you know a single loan operator on a college, or a lot of times we call them programs of one, right? One person running them. You can't take that and triple the size of it and expect not to need additional support right. and corroboration and collaboration. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, I'm joined by some experienced leaders in dual enrollment. This is an emerging space for students and institutions, but for many of us, including me, is pretty new and not very well understood. So I'm really glad to have these three experts who've been working in the space a long time to help us understand and engage with this. I'm so excited for the conversation. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, is. I'm a speaker, author, and coach, and you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I am recording this from my home in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of both the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to our conversation today and bring in our guests. I'm really excited to have you all here uh, and learn uh, with and from you. And let's start it off with Dr. Karanda Bean. Hello, everyone. How are you? I'm Dr. Karanda Bean. I'm from Louisiana. Um, and my pronouns are she, her. Um, this is a very exciting opportunity. I've been in the space of dual enrollment um, in post-secondary education for 16 years, um, something that is truly dear to my heart. Um, and with this space, I've been able to it just expand and grow in higher ed, grow as a leader, and really provide those opportunities for students locally. Um, currently, I do work for the Louisiana Department of Education as an educational program consultant. Um, in this role, I continue to work with dual enrollment, creating um, pathways for our students. Um, in secondary to transition to either post-secondary or career opportunities. And so dual enrollment is still a part of my everyday, um, my everyday work. Um, and I currently serve on the commission for NASEP, the National Alliance for Current Enrollment Partnerships. I serve on the advocacy commission as a state representative. Um, I served as a regional representative for three years, and now I'm three more years as a state representative. Again, just advocating um, and helping other um other schools and other individuals and districts to be able to grow dual enrollment opportunities. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for being here. And Chris Conson, you've been on the show before to, for folks who haven't listened to that episode on humanity in the workplace, check it out, but tell us a little bit more about you. Thanks, Keith. Uh, Dr. Chris Conson, I am the executive director of the Sea Caucus Center and Early College Programs at Hudson County Community College. Uh, in Northeast New Jersey. My pronouns are he, him, his. And uh, I also admit that I knew nothing about dual enrollment until I, I inherited uh, the early college programs uh, when my role was changed about four years ago. And uh, like a true Maryland Terp, I dove into all the research <laughs> and everything I could uh, absorb on dual enrollment uh, to understand uh, what this work entailed. So uh, I'm very excited to be very familiar with it and 
you know, working with my colleagues across the state, hopefully to create our first state chapter of NASEP. We're, uh, we're in the bylaws uh, finalization stage now, and I hope to be um, one of the first uh, members of the leadership of that group. And uh, I've been very excited. I got to see Hudson County Community College's first group of high school students earn associate's degrees upon their high school graduation. And uh, we've had a little over 100 uh, mm -hmm. since I came on. And uh, we have right now we have over 200 students on a pathways track uh, in just associate degree pathways alone. So yeah. uh, really enjoy this. Enjoy this work. Uh, and I like many folks who end up doing this work mm -hmm. as a practitioner on the college side, they fall into it because of, yeah. of uh, a role change or you know, a shift. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I'm very excited. I couldn't see myself doing anything else now. Yeah. So very happy to do this work. That's, that's awesome. And one of the things we'll talk about is this is really a growing thing. So I think there might be some campuses that don't have someone who need one and might pull in someone uh, like you from student affairs and bring that, that connection. Amy, tell us a little bit about you and your role. Hello, everybody. My name is Amy Williams. I use the pronoun she, her. I am the executive director of the National Alliance of Concurrent Enrollment Partnerships, which admittedly is a pretty clunky, uh, you know, name to try and spit out. So we go by the moniker of NASEP. Uh, and probably for reasons that'll become obvious through the conversation today. Uh, for those that have not heard of NASEP, you've just heard from two people that are uh, engaged with our organization already, as well as solid, strong, uh, motivated, and passionate practitioners. So those that don't know NASEP, we are the first and only national organization that really works in three realms. We support programs, practitioners, and policy to advance quality dual and concurrent enrollment programs. So we are all things dual credit, dual enrollment, concurrent enrollment, running start, jump start, early start, PSEO, EPS, PSEO, all of the different terms out there. Um, we like to say that we serve many models with one singular mission to advance our national community and build equity and quality in dual and concurrent enrollment programs. So we do that through a variety of different mechanisms uh, and a lot of them are very fun like professional development uh, events. We just finished our national conference in St. Louis. Was that last week, I think? Uh, really a lot of great feedback. People enjoyed that. It's always great to see friends old and new. Uh, and I guess for context, before joining NASEP, I was a classroom teacher, high school and middle school for 11 years. Then I jumped over to higher ed to help them build a dual credit program at a really small two-year college. Uh, and that really got me the right kind of attention for the kind of the strategic approach that I took towards that and built it into our Perkins landscape as well as things like that. So I got pulled into the system office to do the same kind of work to build and scale and expand access and improve affordability and student engagement in dual and concurrent enrollment programs. Uh, and then I, you know, got to build on work on building that into the Perkins landscape as the state's CTE director and dual enrollment director. Many hats. Yeah. And you're coming to us from Montana, right? Yep. Beautiful Bozeman, Montana, although it's not no, that beautiful today. It's almost winter. We, I'm in Minnesota. You're in Montana. We got Jersey. We got Louisiana. We're doing great. We're, we're, we're all spread out here. Awesome. Uh, Amy, it is a treat to hear you rattle off that mission statement. And <laughs> I had the uh, the opportunity to work with NASEP on their strategic plan a couple of years ago and mission, vision, and values and strategic goals and outcomes. And so it's really great to hear uh, some of that language, which we were creating and emerging, uh, sounds like it's second nature to you. So super, super fun to hear that. Great. Work. Had a couple of years to work on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, so Amy, we're going to stick with you to really lay the foundation here. Help those of us who are not very familiar, as I wasn't very familiar, and as Chris was saying, and I think a lot of our audience maybe is hearing this language, not quite sure. And there's a lot of language. In your intro, you you rattled off a lot of stuff and a lot of alphabet soup. So help us kind of clean this up. Uh, help us understand dual, concurrent, uh, AP, IB, some of the other things. Just kind of help us lay the foundation for the conversation. I will do my best, but it does kind of end up rolling us into more of a history lesson as well, uh, because right. the the mixed terminology is deeply embedded in kind of the history of these programs. So dual enrollment, dual credit, concurrent enrollment, uh, running start, early start concurrent start, all of those are different terms used to describe 
uh, basically the simple act of a high school student engaging in college before they finished high school. And so all the terms differ based on a variety of different things. Sometimes it's local context and what's used. A lot of times mm -hmm. the terms differ based on who is teaching the course, where mm -hmm. the course is offered, the type of students that are recruited for the course, and kind of the holistic wraparound services that may or may not be provided uh, to help students navigate, as well as some of like the objectives and outcomes that the program's trying to get these students across the graduation finish line by the time they finish high school. So they differ in name um, very frequently because of the type of modality that the program's offered, sometimes where it's offered. Um, we know that when we look at national data, about 86% of high school students that have taken a college course prior to graduating high school report that they took it in their high school. So 80% mm -hmm. of those are in their actual home high school, about 6 to 8% are in like maybe a career center or a regional um, education area. Mm -hmm. So when we get into looking at how these programs end up living in a high school space, there's a lot of complexity behind that. And that's really kind of a fundamental piece of where our organization comes in and to try and build guideposts for navigating this complexity. Um, mm -hmm. The complexity in the terminology really comes from the fact that these are grassroots programs. So Keith, you mentioned like AP and IB, those are nationally uh, built and managed standardized curriculums, right? So there mm -hmm. is one entity in charge of uh, the content that goes into that and then assesses value of students' contributions to that in terms of the exam, and then spits out a score uh, for the consideration of a potential post-secondary entity. These programs are very different because they are very, very much built grassroots and locally. And that's one of the things that's really key, I think, to the sustainability of them because they are highly contextualized to the environment in which they uh, they live and are built and grown. And that makes them very flexible and dynamic. But flexibility and being dynamic and being able to adapt and change different pieces make them pretty hard for researchers to study because they're very heterogeneous. Yeah. Sounds uh, like the wild, wild west, right? Just yeah. a lot going on. A Except lot of people coast making it to up. coast. Yeah, right, right. But just a lot going on, a lot of people innovating, creating and grassroots and not a lot of top-down uniformity, which as you just said, yes. has upsides and downsides. Yeah. Well, and we talk a lot about these. I'll talk about them as the Swiss army knife of education programs, because you can use them mm. in about any direction, whether you want to work on workforce and build apprenticeships, student apprenticeships or work-based learning into them. Totally. You can do that. If you want to accelerate students towards a gen ed uh, associates so that they've got a really foothold uh, across the threshold when they go to college, you can totally do that. And then pretty much Anything you can dream up in between there uh, is fair game and fair space because it's based on partnership. So mm -hmm. one big distinguishing characteristic that's different between like AP and IB is that these are partnerships between a high school or school district and an institution of higher education. And those partnerships are golden. They're probably like the most under rated characteristic of these programs is getting faculty into a room from both high school and the college to really talk shop and get into the curriculum because that's that's what all of us uh, are here for in education is to really get deep in the weeds and enjoy it. So, mm -hmm. and then before I hand things over, cause we've got some really great panelists to hear from today. Mm -hmm. I'll say that I've said that, you know, the history of these grassroots is really an important component. One thing that I just talked about at our national conference and have kind of talked about throughout the year is the history is really relevant and it's shifting, uh, driving a shift and a change. So when you look at these programs, which by the way, go back to the like the 1950s, early 60s, when you look at them, they were basically designed to engage already college bound seniors who are really, you know, twisting in the wind during their senior year, not optimizing and using their time, mm -hmm. not really exploring valuable content. So that's a very highly privileged group, and the, these programs tended to crop up at highly privileged universities, and uh, not surprisingly, in school districts that were affluent and predominantly white. So we've seen national data kind of support that there is a paradigm shift. It's not happening everywhere, not all at once, and certainly not at the uh, accelerated volume we'd love to have. But we are seeing this shift from a more program of privilege focus and maybe even an equity barrier or a perpetuator of inequities mm -hmm. to an equity building type program. And that's what has a lot of people really excited. And there's a lot of really cool research coming out now. Uh, so that's my quick and dirty on like the history of dual enrollment and how you can navigate the terms. I'm sorry, there's a lot out there. If we could fix you it, should, we would. 
you should write Cliff Notes books because that was amazing. You got so much, so clear, so fast, so great. Um, and the beauty of a podcast, you can rewind it and listen to it again. Uh, Chris, what would you add to help further clarify? Well, and uh, student affairs professionals are no strangers to alphabet soups and acronyms. <laughs> totally. So, uh, and we create acronyms uh, yeah. or backdate them to to create cool programs, and we yeah. figure out how we can make things match with letters. So don't worry, but the student affairs professionals out there are used to navigating that. Um, so I'll add, you know, one of the interesting things, and I, and I think it's natural, is that the largest growth in dual enrollment has been at the community college level. Um, and I think that that's for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, because of our mission being open access and, you know, really devoted to serving our community and opening doors. Um, so what's a door to open? That's to create pathways to college for high school students. Um, and so I think the number was about 16% over the past two years um, in a dual enrollment growth at the community college level. It was across the sector, the largest pocket of enrollment growth mm -hmm. over the past few years. In some sectors, the only enrollment growth. It kind of, it actually... Uh, canceled out some of the enrollment losses that community colleges are still dealing with um, through the pandemic. So um, I, I think the the other reason is that I think, and I may be a little biased here, but community colleges tend to be on the cutting edge. Uh, we are more nimble. Uh, we are able to respond to the needs of our community uh, a little bit more quickly than some of the larger institutions, particularly four-year institutions. Uh, you know, so we, and now I can speak for Hudson County Community College, you know, we were well positioned to pivot quickly to expand these opportunities. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I think it's been really fascinating for me to, as I'm learning along, uh, I'm still learning four years in, in doing this work, uh, but loving the opportunity to provide these high school students with pathways that will shorten their college journey, um, which makes it more likely for them to graduate on the other side. And and the research and is showing, I'm sorry? And cost. <clears throat> yes, exactly. You know, um, the, the drawback is particularly for a self-pay student, a student who's not supported through funding through a district or through the college, um, we still we do provide reduced tuition, but they're not eligible for any financial aid. Um, some states may open up some aid, but federally, until you until you have that high school diploma, you're not eligible for federal aid. There was a, um, an experiment to allow early Pell, uh, some Pell access. Uh, they've ended that experiment, and I'm not sure that that's going to continue or or if it does, it would it would be in a different way. Um, well, anyway, depending on federal legislation right now, it's just as good as crossing your fingers. Well, yeah, I don't, there's, there's, they rarely agree on anything at this point. So, uh, but I, I'll, I'll leave it with, I always love attending commencement. That's my favorite part of the year. And when I've worked in community colleges, it is doubly my favorite part of the year because uh, the I know the stories of some of those students and can and can just expand to just imagine what the stories are for every individual walking across that stage. And so when I got to see my first graduating cohort of high school students and mm -hmm. their all their high school, their teachers, their guidance counselors and their families come out, you know, to see them earn an associate's degree, you know, as they graduated high school and and this isn't watered down material. You know, they they did this along with their college peers. And unfortunately, some of the four-year institutions um, are playing catch up when it comes to the receiving side and the transfer mm -hmm. side. Um, but as more of them are starting to expand dual enrollment, I think that will only help uh, when it comes to the transfer of our uh, students and their credits. Yeah. Karanda, what do you want to add to this foundation we're building here? So I'm going to piggyback off of what Chris was talking about. Um, most of my experiences with community colleges, um, that's, as Chris stated, that's just the, the heart and so many more opportunities. I went to a community college, 
So I had the privilege of going through that process. Um, and it is a difference, um, mm -hmm. you know, with that open access, it's just a different environment. It's smaller. Um, it's more of a, just what it says, a community. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think that that's a different perspective for a lot of students, and they don't have that fear of that large, you know, going to the big college um, mm -hmm. and really getting lost. And so, um, you know, Chris spoke about the associate's degrees. So one of the things that um, that I focused on was our CTE programs. Um, Louisiana is a workforce state, so we're really big on workforce. And here in our state, our two-year um, community and technical colleges are the only schools that can provide that training for mm -hmm. students. And so that's where we kind of focus our, what can we do for the students when it came to dual credit? And so one of, one of the things that I worked on was developing um, programs that would allow a student, just like a student could get an associate's degree, that a student could get a technical diploma mm -hmm. um, while earning their high school diploma. And mm -hmm. um, that is very rewarding when you have that first cohort of students come out of that program and they're able to participate. And when we started the program, we started it in 2019 and then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, you know, what does that look like when you have a student that's in welding and uh, automotive when they have to do those tactical um, you know, processes and learn those skills and everything is not just instructional based. Um, mm -hmm. But we were still able to navigate those students and provide those, you know, that instruction that they needed so that they could finish. And again, um, I know one, one thing that when, when I was, when I became involved in it was looking at how does what we offer benefit the student mm -hmm. um and not just providing opportunities um just to say that we're doing it but mm -hmm. really being very intentional about our programming and what and how we're going to help the student to be successful and so um you know just really focusing on those cte and not negating the genetics what's not CTE? negating um, career technical education. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Our look, our alphabet soup, right? Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. We no, love, we love, we love, we love. Yeah. Um, but you know, just really being very intentional about what we're offering to the students and making sure that whatever the end result is, is going to benefit the student at the end. Yeah. Um, and really. Um, having those opportunities and seeing how it has changed some trajectory for some of the students. Those students graduate high school with a technical diploma. They earn industry-based credentials. They are employable. They can go and work. And mm -hmm. that could just change the whole trajectory for that family and yeah. for that student. Um, and so, you know, that I've seen both sides of it, as Amy stated, for the privilege, because when I was in school, that's what dual enrollment was. It, you know, you had to have a certain GPA. You had to have, um, you had to be able to afford it because we didn't have any state support. So if mm -hmm. your parents couldn't afford to pay for you to go, then you didn't participate. Um, but now just seeing, you know, the opportunities that it has for so many students, but I think a lot of it is the lack of um, knowledge that some parents have to be able to really embrace the opportunities yeah. for the students now. So I think that's where we're going with it. Well, let's let's keep talking about that because we see a lot of data that this dual enrollment is absolutely growing when so much of higher ed is condensing, right? This is expanding while many folks are looking at population, uh, enrollment cliffs, uh, and, and also costs. I'm imagining um, that with COVID, with a lot of things going virtual, instead of having to leave third period, drive for fourth period, and then come back, now you just go to the media center, right? And um, so it seems like with COVID and, and virtual options to be able to jump in on a community college class from the media center and then move to your next thing seems much more accessible 
Um, and then also so much attention to the cost of college, you may have to pay for the credits, but if you can leverage them into another place where the credits aren't as expensive, it could be in the long run an opportunity. And I'm just hearing from my kids who are not even in high school, but their peers are starting to think about this as this could be an opportunity to do this, or, you know, I, I can, I remember I was taking advanced math and I topped out. So I had to take, you know, the, the senior math class twice because there was no other option. This could be an option to do something else uh, and extend that. So as we see this growing, I'd love to hear what you see growing with some of my observations, legit or maybe not. Um, and then what do you see on the horizon? What do you see? Pro prognosticate here a little bit. What do you see in the next five to 10 years? Karanda, we're going we're gonna to start with you. So for me, I see that dual enrollment is going to become the norm. It's going to, mm. it's going to just be what is and not, and we won't have to work so hard to convince um, students and parents and school systems and states to really get behind dual enrollment, to invest in it. Mm. Um, because this is going to, this is going to be what's going to create that pathway mm -hmm. into your schools into your work environment this is this is going to be the only way to do it mm -hmm. um i know i can only speak for my state is that you know we found um just in looking at the number of students who go to college when they graduate 18 year olds is not very high it's i think it's less than 50 percent. so they're not going to school and so when you think about that, so what are we preparing them for? Um, I believe that um, when you really, like really, really dig deep into it and really focus on it, we want all students to be college or career, or career ready. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, it's going to start on the secondary side, but what are we doing to prepare them? And I think that's where dual enrollment comes in. So dual enrollment actually begins that process to really get those students involved um, in that. It gets it provides opportunities for them. It gets them exposed to set them up for success. So mm -hmm. that's where I see, because I know here in Louisiana, um, we're really focusing on providing more opportunities for students. Mm -hmm. um, and in my current role, one of the things that I'm working on is establishing apprenticeships. Mm -hmm. Because again, everyone isn't going to college. So what does that look like? So dual enrollment won't, won't only be English, math, history, science. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, dual enrollment is going to be those gen ed classes where you get an mm -hmm. associate's degree. They're going to be those career and technical education classes where you can learn welding, automotives, HVAC, electrical, and it's going to be opportunities where you can do apprenticeships or work-based learning, yeah. where you're actually working in the trade that you're interested in. So I just foresee it growing and expanding and really becoming the norm and just mm -hmm. a part of what we do and not the extra thing that we're just trying yeah, to get yeah. individuals to participate in. I also think it's just a wonderful idea to try things, right? To try this college course, to try welding. I don't know. Let's see. Do I love it? Do I not love it? Um, but also just have some familiarity with uh, what a college course is like, I think just helps that transition, whether you're going to that institution or another institution. It's just kind of a... a you talked about pathways, but also just kind of smoothing that fewer bumps along the way. Chris, what do you see in terms of the growth and what's on the horizon? So I, you know, I agree. I think it is the future. Um, you know, there, there are already uh, career and technical high schools where entire 12th, 12th grade, you know, are spending that entire year at their local community college rather than at the career and technical school. I, I think there may be other trends that will precipitate further growth. I think we're seeing a teacher shortage. Now it can depend on the area of the country, but I, you know, I teaching is not a hot um, field to go into right now for a variety of reasons, which would be a whole other podcast. But as we see fewer teachers, 
Um, and as we see also, as the economy will shift, because you know, we know that, that it's a wave, um, the COVID funds are drying up in the states. And so as they look to maximize investment, where while also we all know that first things that get cut when states need to cut funding is public education. Um, and so particularly higher education. And so what's what's a great way to maximize how you are funding? You know, you are combining sections of high school and college at the same time, but you're also serving a purpose for the state because you may be able to be more likely to keep those students in state because they're already getting credits from your state system, whether they be on the community college side or the four-year side. And so for completion purposes and mm -hmm. you know to, to get to that degree faster, it makes more sense for them to continue, whether it be at the institution that granted them credits or at the institution that they know at least will accept all their credits. And so I think we're those are going to be natural movements based on the surrounding mm -hmm. environment and the shifts that are going to be happening sooner than later, um, you know, it, it, in both our economy and yeah. it, like I said, in the teacher um, recruitment. It also seems to me that um, we'll see more and more campuses wanting to jump on this as a recruitment strategy. Um, if we can get these students enrolled in 11th grade, 10th grade, 12th grade, then we have a better chance they're going to be familiar, they're going to be in our system, they're going to know us, they're going to have the sweatshirt maybe, you know, that this seems like a great way when so many campuses are really, really concerned about yeah. enrollment cliff mm -hmm. and, and pipelines and wanting to build relationships with high schools. This seems like a great way to do that. Amy, are you starting to see that? Yeah, I would say I used to have this thing that was more or less a quip that I would just kind of throw out, but really tell me where else or how else you're going to get early access to completely college capable students. And then if you've got something, then throw money at that. Instead, mm -hmm. I've got this, I think you should invest in. Um, Chris and Karanda made awesome points. It's really hard to follow up on that. Um, and I don't want to be, I want to pick up on one of Karanda's things, uh, this idea that this is becoming the norm, because this blew my mind this year. I've been attending NASEP conferences since 2013, right? And so I've been in and around the field. I haven't been the executive director that long. Um, I've been in, in and around the field and for years and years, and I want to say until maybe the last year or so, it was always explaining, fighting for, you know, status, trying to get people to understand what this, in fact, I was at a regents meeting once when I was early on starting my job with the state of Montana. And one of the regents asked me a real, a softball question, but it surprised me. Like, how are we going to know when we're done working on this? Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't really have anything prepared. I just kind of blurted out. When the person that asked me what I do at the grocery store doesn't say, is that kind of like AP when I tell them what mm -hmm. I do? And so mm -hmm. I feel like we've passed that moment where now this is a mm. relatively better understood, again, not everywhere, not by everyone, yeah. uh, but it's becoming a lot more common in the lexicon. And I think to your point, Keith, you know, colleges are looking thoughtfully at what they can do to better help students understand what they offer. And I think this is a great opportunity. And uh, to some of Chris's points, as well as yours, Keith, when you look at the research, so I come back from a background as uh, a STEM research scientist. So I'm always looking in to see what does the peer-reviewed research tell us about these programs? When you look oh, at some get of the- nerdy with us. Do I'm, it. I yeah. love it. I'm going to nerd out. And then I'll talk about state policy, which is my other nerd out. Karanda <laughs> <laughs> knows she's seen it in action. Um, but when you look at like the impact of students, it's not just about like accelerated academics or advanced academics. It's those like college knowledge things, understanding mm. what a bursar's office is, you know, understanding that there are registration periods, that there are drop ad periods, that there's a withdraw period. These are things that if you come from a background in a family that's been to college and you can just call, I don't know what they're talking about, bursar's office, mom, what are they doing? When you come from a background like that, you've got resources you can tap. But dual enrollment programs give students that knowledge well in advance of ever, in many cases, ever stepping foot on a campus, uh, particularly the high school-based models, which are the most prevalent ones. So mm -hmm. there's a real opportunity to build intentionality in terms of outlining paths that bring students somewhere that help them explore options that are not terminal, perhaps, uh, and giving students kind of that extra leg up of confidence. In fact, someone on LinkedIn, um, Chris, it might have even been you, said these programs can serve as a proof of concept, right? 
so that students can really say, oh, yeah, I can do this. I am a college student. Um, mm -hmm. And then to pick up on, um, you know, Chris and Karanda's point about the, the satisfaction that comes with seeing those students, uh, that exact thing, you know, happened to me ages ago now. Um, but one of my real eye openers was I had a student who's like, yeah, I'm in college now. And he was talking about his high school culinary class and he was bragging mm -hmm. about it with his, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and he didn't know I was behind him, but he was bragging with his peers. And I'm like, that's, that's what we're here for. That's what we're yeah. all about. That was that kid's first step in that journey. Yeah. And just getting to explore that. Maybe that kid has now on a path to culinary life, or maybe it was one class and <laughs> 20 years later loves it. So dual enrollment, the best thing to happen to Bursar's office since the Hamilton musical. That's really great. And I and I wanted and I Deep just want to say for those listening, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I just want to say because Amy opens up a great point as well about that knowledge of things like the bursar. You punch the bursar. Mm -hmm. Um, you I think that's especially important for first generation students. And yes. so mm -hmm. by having that exposure while still having the scaffolding that you have as a high school student um, makes that transition a little easier and less daunting. Um, not that the challenges disappear that um, that are there for first gen students, but it makes that transition a little softer because them and their families are introduced to the college terminology and the college experience while they're still minors, while they're still at home, mm -hmm. while they're still mm -hmm. in that nest and right. you can bring them and because we're designed, you know, I, I always joke that uh, I went into higher education so I wouldn't have to deal with parents. And then lo and behold, I ended up dealing with Whoops. high school programs and now I'm dealing with parents all the time. Although I still do have FERPA on my side. It's yeah. very different. But, you know, we're we're built in a way that we're we're communicative with parents because we understand the environment. And so that's, I think, especially helpful for our first gen students. So mm -hmm. I think that was a, a great opening that Amy provided there. Yeah. Well, you're leading us right into our, our next question and we're going to keep on with you, Chris. Um, what are the implications and possibilities per, specifically for student affairs folks who are a large part of our audience? And I, I'd, I'd love us to circle back uh, around to equity and how we help this become less of a, a barrier to equity and something that helps foster greater equity. Mm. So I think, you know, for a while, I think dual enrollment was a silo um, in many institutions and it was ha handled by one individual or one specific, you know, person. But as it grows, so are the needs of those students. And as they become more embedded in the college community, they're going to need the student support services that that are naturally provided to a college student. And not only that, but they're entitled to it because they are college students. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was so I was so happy that I, I didn't even think about it. But our director of mental health approached me and said, you know, we want to make sure that we're supporting the early college students. And I said, that's a great point because they're entitled. And, you know, in fact, when you think about, we know that there's growing mental health concerns uh, for our young people, and it's just exploding. Yeah. If we can help provide additional support to take some of the burden off the high school counselors. And, and you know, in many districts, in high school districts, you have one social worker for all of the schools within that district. You have one person who's licensed to provide care, uh, mental health care, because they've got that school counselor model. And so now some of those folks may have a license, but it's not part of their job. And, mm -hmm. and you know, they've got caseloads so huge they're they're just trying to work through the 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 college recommendation letters, let alone providing the kind of support. But we can help support do some of that, and we've already started on. I know at my institution we've had early college students reaching out and wanting that support because they're now on campus, and so and we've we've had conversations with career services now mm -hmm. um you know as 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 Karana talked about with the CTE component career and technical and, and being at a community college we support that as equally we it's mm -hmm. not just about degree and transfer but it's also about preparing students for the workforce 
our career services are, are starting to get more involved in working with these students. All those traditional student affairs components. Now, I I, I don't think Res Life will get as involved. Um, that may be one area that that except for those like summer exposure programs, yeah. they may mm -hmm. not have to worry uh, as much, but we've got students who are joining clubs. We've got students who are eligible to join honor societies and want to get involved in those. Yeah. We've got students who want to go on service trips with the college, you know, especially when their high school doesn't offer those things. So yeah. all those components that are in traditional student affairs and institutions, they're going, and I know they will welcome it. I know my colleagues and my peers in student affairs, you know, expanding the view and expanding the tent to help support those students who are also in high school as well. I'm just imagining how uh, the 16 or 17 year old taking some of these <laughs> classes with traditionally aged college students or even with non-traditionally aged college students could be really challenging it also could be a remarkable break from being around other 16 and 17 year olds who maybe they don't connect with maybe they're mm -hmm. on the autism spectrum maybe right. they're more mature than their peers maybe they have different interests it just seems like a wonderful way to get connected which certainly could come with his bumps but also has some assets um Corona, what do you see as some of the implications and possibilities? So I come from both sides. So I started in student affairs and I've worked in academic affairs. So I um, won't hold that part against you. <laughs> but, um, you know, dual enrollment is, you know, even though it's an academic program, yeah. it is not successful without student services. And so I think that when, um, a lot of colleges and when they're implementing these programs, it's about the collaboration and getting everyone together to understand that it takes everyone in order to make the program successful. And like Chris said, in a lot of schools, it's a silo. So it's one person that's doing dual enrollment and they just kind of sit out there and, and, and kind of just do what they do. Um, but I think that in order to like fully engage and be um, present, it, it takes everybody. And I know for um, for us here in Louisiana, one of the, you know, one thing that we really, really focused on is the student support, how we're supporting the students and how it ties to being equitable and having access and opportunities for all students. And that goes with the, mm -hmm. with the support. And the support isn't, you know, support can look like transportation. Support can look like um, making sure that they have food to eat. Support can, support can look in so many different ways. And, you know, with the food pantries now that um, we're implementing on campuses um, and making sure that all of those things are provided. It could be internet, it can be mm -hmm. Wi-Fi, it can mm -hmm. be a laptop. Um, mm -hmm. um, COVID really showed the lack of broadband here in, mm -hmm. in our state, in the rural areas. It just didn't work. So what does that, you know, so what does that look like, right? So how do we support the students when it comes to that? Um, how do we support students if we're telling them we're preparing them for career opportunities, but they have to write a resume? Um, they have to know those soft skills. They have to be able to do an email and not text the email, um, <laughs> like write a complete sentence. Um, and so for, you know, and so that's one of the things as Chris stated, like getting career services involved, um, getting counseling and disability services involved, mm -hmm. um, making sure that you know, with advising, like really getting your advising team involved, because again, we can't rely 100% on the high schools because some schools have one counselor, some schools have a shared counselor, you know, mm -hmm. it has a counselor that goes from school to school to school. It's, it's not, it's not the same. Um, but I think that for, for me and the conversations that I've been a part of here in the state, um, around dual enrollment, we have a task force and, you know, talking about, you know, the, the, what student support students need. So what, what does that look like? Making sure the student affairs, um, 
individuals at the table academically. What does that look like? Making sure we have programs. And with all of that, how do we make it equitable? Like, what are we doing to make sure that every student has the same opportunity? Um, and I think that that's very important in being very intentional and making sure that when we create policies, um, when we take things to the legislator, that it's written in there. And also working with the school systems, both secondary and post-secondary, to make sure that when they're creating policies and procedures and things that they're thinking about that also. And they're not just looking at it in one way, but they're really looking at how do they, how do we reach everyone? How do we make sure everyone has the same opportunity? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's very, for me, that was, that's where my passion lied. Um, yeah. Cause I just did not, I wanted every student. I didn't, it didn't matter where they were in my region. I thought they should all have the same opportunity. Yeah. It didn't matter. And I, and, and that was a part of it. So even if they were a student who needed accommodations, then what did that look like? And I didn't want a, a, a teacher to say, so that was talking to our disability services, you know, department and saying, okay, so we have students, what does that look like? Do mm -hmm. we, do, do you want to just know who they are and they use the accommodations at the school? Do we want, you know, if they are coming on our campus, then what does that look like? And making sure that we provided that information yeah. for the students. And we just didn't take for granted that they knew what to do. And right. so, um, you know, I think that Again, it takes everyone coming to the table. When I served as the director for dual enrollment, I went to academic meetings and I went to student service meetings. I, so I was able to share from both perspectives to make sure that everyone understood, you know, what the need was and what we had to come together collaboratively and do in order to provide the services for our students. Right. And really, it sounds like really being student-centered, right? Yes. Uh, with academic and student affairs, but also high school and college and not being yeah. like, well, they're your problem, they're your problem. But how do we work together to meet this student and, and really do that for them? Amy, what would you add? So this is maybe a little tangential, but I'll jump on the, the element of equity. So we've mm -hmm. been working on a resource that we're about ready to launch that we think will be really helpful for programs because it poses, you know, when I started talking off or started off talking today, I kind of talked about national data and that there are equity gaps in there. It really applies to the same same uh, principle and approach to the program level. So these programs start between a school district and an institution of higher ed, right? That's a direct connection. You know one population and you're hopeful if you're higher ed that you'll receive that population. But a lot of programs we find don't even look at their student participation data. Uh, some of them can't collect that information uh, mm -hmm. disaggregated by race and gender and things like that, uh, or they make it voluntary. But we're really challenging all programs to start with the basics. Look at who your students are and how closely does that mimic the school district demographics you're working with? So if you are only drawing in the white affluent students, but mm -hmm. you have a school district that's 50% um, free and reduced and 30% Latino, and you're not bringing those students in, you've got a gap to close. And one of the things I, I did a piece that when I started thinking about the paradigm shift that we're seeing in the field, I did a piece uh, in association with a school administrators magazine, uh, AASA. And I talked about the fact that when I started working on a program on campus, a lot of the administration were talking about how do we reach these students that don't think they're college capable and they're not capable, college bound, uh, and they come from a community mm -hmm. of color. Uh, and they were talking about all these just different strategies. Well, at no point in time were they actually talking to the students or their families uh, <laughs> about how these opportunities would be best marketed to them or influenced. And at no point in time were they talking about, let's look at the demographics of our community and who's participating in our programs, and then have some thoughtful conversations about how to fix that. So that's one of the key things I've really been talking about is that student focus at the level of granular data and looking at who your students are and who's participating can be a really great annual activity because then you can strategize how you want to close those gaps and processes policies, outreach events, community engagement opportunities that might help you get there, uh, and then start to look and monitor progress and set some goals in there. And then you've got the next year comes around, you can pull the same data sheet and say, mm -hmm. okay, how do we do? 
And as long as we're having a conversation, let's do some planning for next year. So I think that's a really important element. Um, when you look at the national data, the most under or the largest equity gap is with student, and I'm going to get it wrong, so I'm not even going to quote percentages, but uh, students with disabilities and English, English language learners, mm -hmm. followed by, I believe, Latino, Hispanic males, and I believe Black males are in mm -hmm. the same group. So those are the underrepresented groups, but those populations will differ depending on where you are in the country. Yeah. So start with your own school district data. And if your goal is to take the, I would say in some ways, the easiest student, the one in your community that drives by your campus every once in a while, uh, maybe had a sibling or a cousin goes there, start with those students and see how you can build a bridge. And I think that's kind of to Karanda and Chris's uh, earlier points, we really need to, if these things are becoming more normative, we need to talk about them more strategically in terms of how does this best support the student? What's their next step? Because uh, I taught in high school for a number of years and all the conversations were like, and then we get them to graduation. Boom. It was very focused on a terminal event, yeah. not preparing for a transitional event, which I only yeah. saw in our IEP students because that was federally required to do transition yeah. planning post high school. So, you yeah. know, apply that lens of... um you know, learning elements that work for all students. And you can see that all students could probably use a little bit of transition planning. And I do know that there are states that are active in that, uh, but it's not pervasive and not everywhere. And it's not yeah. baked into these systems. I love it. And so can I, identify I'm, I'm sorry, gaps. Keith. Yeah, I'm ahead. sorry. <laughs> Just to piggyback, because that's a good point, because I know what we did here is <clears throat> when we developed, when the task force came, we looked at the whole state and we to to see where was the gap, right? And so when we saw what the gap was, the first year was um, COVID happened, which was probably one of, COVID wasn't good, but it was good. It, it had, you know, it, it kind of worked because we were able to, they were able to um, introduce an interim policy that was discussed based yep. on the data, right? and show that gap with, mm -hmm. you know, between white students, um, African-American students and, um, you know, ESL students and Latino students. And what we did was we changed the requirement. Mm -hmm. So since they couldn't take ACT, that wasn't a requirement anymore. And so we had different requirements. And we also had the requirement where the um, high school counselor can recommend the student. And believe it or not, even during COVID, where we thought we would see a decrease in dual enrollment, we actually saw an increase in dual enrollment mm -hmm. because of the standards and that gap closed a little bit. It didn't close all the way, but you can see the difference. And so yeah. that was something like to speak to what Amy said is using the data to drive policy change because now that's a part of, it's not just an interim policy, now it's a policy for dual enrollment. And also we were able to write it into our four-year school mm -hmm. admission standards now to where students who take dual enrollment classes and other it's, it's other measurements now that will allow a student to go to a four-year that in, in two years ago would not have been the case. Right. And so that's still closing it, that that gap that we're talking about and using the data to drive those policy changes. I really love these very tangible things. Identify the gaps, make sure you're getting students the support, increasing access, removing barriers, disaggregating data, being proactive and changing policies. We saw so many policies change under COVID circumstances. And then we thought, why was this ever a thing? Why was this ever a rule? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense at all. Sometimes we go back to those rules for no good reason, but we have just uh, a little bit of time, just a couple of minutes. Uh, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. We always like to end with asking, what are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? And if you also want to share where folks can connect with you, feel free to do that. Amy, what are you pondering now? All right. Well, I'll just be totally candid. When we talk about growth in these programs, 
um, often the caveat comes up, but if it grows, can it still maintain quality? So we are, and we're an organization founded on, let's build some quality standards so people that are working on these at the grassroots level have some guideposts to follow um, because we've been through it, we've seen it, we know they're gonna have to tackle this, this is how we suggest they take it on. Uh, so that's definitely part of something that I worry about is I don't think growth and quality are mutually exclusive, but there has to be intent and planning. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't take a program that's a, you know, a single loan operator on a college, or a lot of times we call them programs of one, right? One person running them. You can't take that and triple the size of it and expect not to need additional support right. and corroboration and collaboration. Uh, and so we are seeing that kind of pressure start to expand things. The other thing that I think is going to come on the rise that kind of keeps me up a little at night, although I'm now like chatting with my friends from CCRC because they're working on a, a thought piece on this, is this idea that? of CCRC? Yeah, Community College Research Center. Thank you. Um, so one of the things they've been starting to pick up on and has always been kind of like a deep seated concern is a lot of times people talk about, oh, well, dual credit classes don't transfer, which is not true. They transfer about as well as other classes do in an American system that's not very good at facilitating transfer, period. Mm -hmm. So dual enrollment just happens to be a subset of the American transfer problem. But as that grows, it's going to become less of a subset and more normative, kind of to Karanda's point. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about, and I'm stealing this from them, I didn't come up with it, but they've been talking about it in terms of stealth transfer. These are transfer students that don't like look like transfer students because they're incoming freshmen, right? They're going to come mm -hmm. in as uh, first, in most states, they'll come in as first-time freshmen unless they're carrying significant credits in the state wow. or the institution as a policy. So I think, you know, I was talking to a state a couple of weeks ago and they were like, we really want to blow this up. Oh, we're excited about this. I'm like, that's great. You guys are well poised. You've got this policy, this policy, and this policy, but let's talk about your transfer because what you're looking to blow up is to dump a bunch of students out into the woods with credits that they don't really have a lot of navigational support for. You're not a common course numbered state. You, your institutions two and four year don't play well together. They have mm -hmm. no two plus two agreements. So again, bringing the focus back to the students. Uh, but I think, you know, if we're prognosticating about the things that keep me up at night, it's growth with quality. Uh, and what happens to these programs when they accelerate in their growth and we're bringing students that maybe have less of a history or support system related to higher ed and then just kind of releasing them and saying, good luck, kiddo. Here's your credits. Go figure yeah. out how to use them. Um, so I think building and training those skills with students and within institutions to understand these stealth transfer students. That's kind of, awesome. yeah, got a little gray hair about that one. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Chris, what are you pondering now? So for me, it's that, um, again, it's actually along the lines of growth and it's that my hope that our higher ed ivory tower thinking doesn't get in the way and cause a plateau, you know, and, and in, in student affairs, uh, you know, we are still centralized in a way, even though we, we've got folks like to think of us as siloed sometimes, but mm -hmm. we still all report up through you know, common individuals and individuals who, in theory, can tell us what to do. On the academic side, though, it's decentralized. And if you've got a champion or somebody who really believes in the work, you're set. All you need is one academic dean or, you know, one area that doesn't believe in it for some reason, who thinks that, as Amy talked about, the quality, who, who doesn't have any data to back it up, but just this feeling that it's it's that it's not of the same quality you know or that the students aren't college ready um and i love that we're an achieving the dream school because we get to repeat put mm -hmm. on repeat the saying by uh dr karen stout it's not about students being college ready it's about colleges being student ready yeah. and you know we i i love that we are uh, we have that mantra, but not not everyone always buys in, and that's the same at every institution. Yeah. And so, you know, when it comes to doing the the high school based dual enrollment, and it comes to working with teachers who don't have a master's in English, but they've been teaching APs for fifteen years, um, and maybe better teachers than some of your adjuncts teaching college composition. I, you know, I'll put it out there because they learned how to teach the content. And, 
yet we won't consider them because they don't have a master's in the discipline. You know, those are the kinds of things that that bother me. Uh, fortunately, I have I work with some great folks who support the the work that we're doing, but I know that you know that can be a a, a speed bump um, at at some institutions and in some states so uh that's what troubles me when it comes to thoughtful expansion of the work we're doing karanda what are you pondering <laughs> um so i think for me it's just the it's the growth of dual enrollment and it's also the collaboration between secondary and post-secondary and what does that look like when it comes to again what Chris and Amy talked about quality of program and quality of instruction, because it looks different, mm -hmm. whether it's the high school instructor teaching the course um, or whether it's the college, you know, instructor teaching the course. And I think that um, coming to the table and ensuring that we're not um, duplicating information, but that we're really being intentional and strategic about how we are doing instruction on the secondary level, how does it fall into post-secondary, and then how do we work together to make sure that what we're doing for the student is benefiting them, and what mm -hmm. does that look like in the dual enrollment space? That's what I ponder on. That's what you ponder. All right, awesome. Uh, thanks to the three of you. This has been great. I've learned a ton, and I think this is something that is going to be more and more on the radar of many of folks in our audience, and I think you've done a great job laying the foundation, helping him get the basics, but then also really complicating this and really look at some of the recommendations for good practices, good support, good policies, good things to advocate for. So thanks to all three of you very much. And thanks also to our sponsor of today's episode, Simplicity. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or visit them on social media. A huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who will do all the behind the scenes work to make us look and sound good. And we love the support for these conversations from our community. You can help us reach even more folks by subscribing to the podcast, subscribing on YouTube, or subscribing to our weekly newsletter that announces each new episode on Wednesday mornings. If you're so inclined, you can leave us a five-star review. It helps these conversations reach more folks. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to our fabulous guests today and to everyone who is watching and listening. Make it a great week. Thank you all.